Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water, to support women as leaders in the conservation movement, to ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my co-host today is Marsha Brownlee. Marsha, how's it going? It's good. Ashley, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing excellent. Uh, and our guest today is Brittany Viers. Hi, Brittany. Hi. How are you doing? I'm great. It's great to be with y'all today. Oh, we're happy to have you here. So let's start off with a question we like to ask a lot of our guests. Can you tell us what's in your freezer? <laughs> What a great question. Um, we don't have a lot of um, dead wild critters in our freezer, which I'm sure is the whole point behind this question. <laughs> but um, and that's that's just because we have three kids and very busy schedules, and um, you know we like to hunt. My my husband makes more time for it than I do, but um, it's just something that you know we just randomly happens and so we don't uh, have a lot of dead things in our freezer but um <laughs> i grew up on a farm and my dad is um so good to us and he provides us with um organic beef so we don't oh, have to buy awesome. it at the grocery store so um that and lots of um frozen fruit and veggies so nothing uh super cool or unusual <laughs> nothing outlandish hey that's okay we actually have a good amount of beef from my dad in our freezer right now because we also have a child and didn't get a deer last year so ah yes yep. so we're all in the same boat there <laughs> yes i can certainly empathize yep. <laughs> well uh Brittany, can you tell us a little bit about who you are sure um well first and foremost and most importantly i'm a mother of three wonderful children, Darby, 12, Lily, 11, and Nolan, 4. Um, I love being a mom, and um, I love teaching my kids about nature and the outdoors, and uh, that's something I'm very passionate about. Um, I'm also a wife of a biologist. My husband is also a wildlife biologist, and he works for NRCS as a soil conservation technician in our home county here in Henry County, Tennessee. Uh, our little town is Paris, Tennessee. Um, and I'm also a, a quail biologist, a botanist, a uh, grasslands advocate. Um, I uh, had kind of a, a little bit of an unusual childhood. A lot of folks, you know, grow up in the same town and spend their whole childhood in, in one place. Um, unless you're in the military, um, but I did not grow up in a military family. My parents just uh, moved some because of job opportunities. Um, I'm originally from Northeast Texas, um, uh, so I spent part of my childhood there. Most of my family is, is still in Texas, so I still very much consider it home. Um, but we moved to Southern Indiana, 10 hours away when I was a kid and uh, my mom is from southeastern Indiana and my dad had an ag degree and just happened to randomly find a job in the in the ag industry and so we moved to southwest Indiana and I spent the rest of my childhood there um, but my heart's always been in the south 
Uh, so I went to college at Murray State University in the Jackson Purchase area of southwestern Kentucky. Uh, I got my bachelor's there in wildlife biology, my master's in biology with a focus uh, on field botany. And um, so uh, I, I just have always been extremely passionate about um, ecosystem restoration and quail management and um, those things have led me where I am today. Yeah, gosh, I understand why you don't have time to hunt. It's the the two biologist and child situation. <laughs> I can I can empathize. My husband is also a wildlife biologist. Um, but that's it's really interesting. I didn't know that about you, Brittany. That you kind of your roots are in Texas. And mm-hmm. uh, can you tell us a little bit about where on your journey you started to get interested in quail? Yeah. So again, this is my path was also a little non-traditional when it comes to the quail community as well. Um, A lot of my colleagues, um, you know, had summer internships focusing on Bob Whites and or uh, did a a master's thesis uh, or a doctoral dissertation on Bob Whites. Um, And so I, I found my passion for quail a little later um, than, than others. So for my, uh, master's thesis, I focused on early successional plant communities. And, um, we had noticed in the mid South that loblolly pines were becoming actually quite invasive, even though they're considered a native pine to the, to this, to the Southeastern U S. But, uh, when they were planted way outside of their range, you know, for soil stability, um, and also the pulp wood industry, and so my thesis was focused on um, looking at how uh, loblollies were affecting these early successional plant communities, which often were full of grassland and prairie indicator species. So uh, that's really where I kind of honed in on my botany skills and, and love for, for native plants and field botany. But I didn't realize at the time that really I was working in quail habitat. And then I just happened to get my foot in the door with, um, at the time, Quail Unlimited in a partnership with uh, the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. And I was stationed at Peabody Wildlife Management Area in uh, Western Kentucky, in Muhlenberg County, and then also the Wendell Ford National Guard Base, also in Muhlenberg County, Kentucky. And I just, the you know the job was focused on trying to um use the skills that were successful at peabody and applying them at wendell ford to increase the quail population at wendell ford and um i just quickly realized that um you know native plant diversity and bob whites totally go hand in hand and um so i realized that I was just as passionate about Bob Whites as I was plant communities um, while I was at Peabody, and that was 11 years ago. And um, so that led me to my career with uh, Quail Forever, and I've been with QF almost 10 years now. It'll be 10 years in in April. Um, So, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, and can we talk talk about your 
I feel like in your description of yourself, you just kind of low key. I'm a, you know, biologist, but you're the, you're the state coordinator for Quill Forever, right? Or even does it yes. expand beyond Tennessee, your role? Um, not officially. <laughs> I'm certainly assigned to Tennessee and we have, I just have a stellar team here. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of assist when asked and when needed in other states. Um, I do have one biologist that I supervise and mentor in Kentucky still. His name is Ted Branchaw and he's based out of Richmond, Kentucky. Um, and then I have, um, you know, the colleagues and my coworkers in the other southeastern states, we're all a really tight-knit bunch. And so it's, um, common for me to maybe assist with trainings or um, just helping another biologist out, you know, in one of the other states. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, but so my path with QF started as a farm bill biologist one, you know, bottom of the ladder, so to speak, <laughs> in West Tennessee. And I serviced uh, 11 counties in West Tennessee. Um, through the NRCS partnership. So I worked in and out of um, NRCS county field offices and assisted private landowners and the NRCS field staff. And then uh, I did that for three years and then I was a senior farm bill biologist for about three years, uh, which, you know, just means you've got more of a leadership role and uh, trained quite a few other biologists and uh, also wanted to mention that I was the first ever farm biologist in Tennessee and really in the Southeast. So, um, Wait, not, whoa, the I'm first not saying that's ever? a brag. <laughs> no, that's crazy because I, so coming up like through even undergrad, but certainly grad school, there's constantly those farm bill biologist positions are popping up all the time. I feel like or they were through my time. Yes. Um, because I'm sure the, as a result of a lot of great partnerships, there's funding available for them. Um, sure. but that's, that's so cool. I didn't realize you were the first. Yeah. And, and I, I'm just making a, a point to mention that because Pheasants Forever, our sister organization is, uh, you know, much more developed as far as like partnerships go in the Midwest and out West. And so, um, things have happened a little more slowly in, in the quail, uh, range for, for quail forever in our partnerships. Now it's blown up in the past two years, but for a long time, it was just us holding down the fort. And, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we paved the way to a degree for, um, you know, to kind of be viewed as a model, um, for positions in the other Southern states. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, after I was a senior farm biologist, I was a coordinator, a coordinating wildlife biologist, and I oversaw a Grasslands RCPP Regional Conservation Partnership Program that was funded through USDA and NRCS. And that was a multi-state position. I covered Kentucky and Tennessee and um, Northern Mississippi and Alabama. And I did that for two and a half years and then became the Tennessee State Coordinator last November of 2021. So can you give us kind of a, let's say bird's eye view, no pun intended, but just a little vignette on 
what the deal is with quail in the southeast, northern bobwhite quail. And the reason that I say this is because Artemis began in the west, and a lot of topics that we covered for a long time kind of focused on western species, western landscapes, and um, we've been branching out a little bit more and more. But I feel like when a lot of our listeners hear quail, they might be thinking of some of those western quail species, and the northern bobwhite is unique from that. So can you tell us a little bit about just the situation? Yeah. So, um, Northern Bob whites are definitely struggling throughout their native range, which is about 23 states, give or take some, depending on weather conditions. Um, so like so many species right now, especially those that are, um, that inhabit early successional habitat and or um, natural grasslands, they're in steep and rapid decline. And so it's, it's no uh, surprise that the reasons for their decline uh, are due to major habitat loss, destruction, um, lack of proper management. Um, of course, urbanization is always a factor with any population decline. Um, but specifically for Bob Whites um, in, in, in the working lands and uh, in the Mid-South and other parts of the Southeast, uh, they lack escape and loaf, loafing cover. Um, they have several components um, that make up or, you know, sort of consist of ideal habitat for bob whites, um, nesting cover, brood rearing cover. They have to have a, a really good bare ground component so the, the chicks and the adults have very good maneuverability. Um, but the, the number one limiting factor is escape cover. And examples of that um, are shrubby, natural shrubby cover, um, shrub thickets, uh, old hedgerows, any place where, um, you know, a, a bird that is preyed upon can get away, so to speak. Uh, everything wants to eat a quail. So they've got to have places to hide. Um, and also rest and have thermal cover during the winter as well. So, um, and there's there's a lot of landowners that we meet with that will say, well, my land hasn't changed in 30 years, yet there's this rapid decline. What's going on? Well, in not every case, but oftentimes, very often, if you were to look at aerial imagery uh, over time, over that period of, of several decades, you would see that, you know, the hedgerows have been removed. There's no more patches of Chickasaw plums or winged sumac uh, or blackberry thickets. That's another uh, really beneficial um, example of escape cover for bobwhites. So the other thing is in, in the Southeast, especially, we always are fighting succession. Plant succession happens so much more rapidly here, meaning sapling encroachment, and the loss of that bare ground component. And so that's why prescribed fire is so extremely critical to help Bob Whites um, because it, it sort of, you know, sets back the scale. Um, 
also the use of very um, strategically um, used or um, implemented herbicide uses of recommendations. Um, so targeting herbicides for the sapling encroachment and also invasive species that threaten, um, you know, the usability of, you know, the quail habitat. So, um, you know, we, we have to target things like Cerecia lespediza um, and sometimes fescue or Bermuda grass or, you know, there's a whole lot of different invasive species that we battle. Um, so those are just some specific uh, challenges, extreme challenges that Bob Whites face uh, in the southeast. Yeah, it's hot and wet. Things like to grow fast, don't they? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and one last thing I'll say is uh, we also, because I'm really hoping that landowners will listen to this episode, um, we also have to explain very often that predators are not the main uh, reason for quail declines. Now, a lot of folks think that and they want to default to that. And if there is a, a predator problem, it's normally due to an ecological imbalance, you know, to where there's something that's been, you know, removed or, you know, altered or whatever to where a predator population is higher than what it should be. And then, you know, they can arm that local quail population but um you know again that really goes back to what is um the ideal habitat what are the the what are bob white's needs in that particular location and um, really looking at that from a big picture scale and standpoint yeah, I feel like quail are kind of like sheep, you know, they're just looking for a way to die. So it's important You're exactly to, right. Yes. to try to have places for them <laughs> to true. escape to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Marsha, what are your thoughts on all this? It's so interesting. Um, uh, Ashley, I'm grateful that you asked the question about uh, just talking a little bit more about what's happening with the bobwhite because as one of those Western people, I'm not super familiar with the species but hearing you talk about it Brittany it brought to mind kind of the the a similar relationship out here between junipers and sagebrush habitat and sage grouse uh, and kind of native encroaching habitat that um, needs management because uh, of 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 development and climate change and changing um, landscapes and hearing you talk about the importance of prescribed fire and targeting herbicide and maintaining a healthy landscape. Um, I kind of want to zero in on that because it, uh, I don't want to say those are hard sells <laughs> because they can be management, I right? I mean, yeah. agencies and, and biologists understand the delicate balance of why they're important and why those tactics in particular are necessary. But I think when you, um, put it out on a, on a bigger demographic and talk to the general public about it. There's so much misunderstanding um, and so much uh, negativity around those ideas. Can you, yeah, I, I'm, 
I don't know if I have a question, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and how, from Quail Forever's perspective, you talk to your community about those management tactics. Yeah, well, yeah, that, first of all, just say that there's just um, a great degree of, um, you know, similarities between sage grouse and bob whites and, and you know, other native galliforms. Um, yeah, a lot of the same challenges there. So the best way that we know to reach a broader and bigger audience is just simply through outreach. Um, all of our partner biologists are required to do landowner workshops. We often partner with um, other entities um, such as state fish and wildlife agencies and extension um, biologists and foresters and professionals. So, I mean, that's, we actually are going to get our first ever grasslands outreach coordinator for Tennessee and Alabama um, to not only do their own grasslands and quail outreach, but also assist with our, our field biologist teams in both of those states. Um, so, I mean, other than just leaning on the tailgate with the average landowner mm -hmm. and explaining these things, which is also what we do every single day. And yes, we probably sound like a broken record, but if, you know, those points need to be repeated, then so be it, because it's mm -hmm. very important. I, I, sometimes folks just gravitate to what seems simple as far as uh, problems with wildlife populations. Mm. and habitat loss and most of the time it's much more complex yeah. and so it's not the public's fault that you know they don't understand I mean that's why we're the professionals and the biologists so it is totally our jobs to try to explain that as best we can and, and set the record straight and mm -hmm. um, we've had a lot of success with um, landowner workshops and um, often have the support of NRCS and, and FSA, the Farm Service Agency, while we do this. And um, so we just have to continue to um, deliver that that message. Um, I like that phrase, tailgating conversation. <laughs> it, it brings to mind a great picture. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel like it can be hard to, you know, thinking about it from a landowner perspective, you've got everybody else in your community that, you know, is under a lot of times all under the same impression of what the issue might be, whether it be predators or, you know, what have you. And there's a lot in the media now with, you know, all of the hunting shows and whatever you can find on YouTube. And I mean, it goes on and on and on all of the marketing that happens around wildlife management now that it can be really hard to go against the grain. I mean, scary to do it yourself, but even once you decide to, I'm sure that community pushback for whatever management action you might take on your own land is a factor as well in adopting practices that might be different. Yeah, and the other thing that I really need to mention is um, when we have these workshops, especially during the growing season, it's ideal and we, 
most of the time can achieve this um, to have be strategic with the location. So we often will um, have the workshop on private lands or even on public lands where uh, they are doing everything right to manage for quail and you can see and hear the results. And um, so that's also very important, you know, so, so that um, folks can actually see the result of that hard work and um, have it in a place that can serve as like a demonstration area. So. Yeah, show them the proof. That makes sense right. to me. <laughs> yep. All right, we are gonna take a quick break to hear from our partners. For 125 years, Rio has made shot shells for hunting, sport, and defense using their own premium components. Top shooters like three-gunner Rihanna Kadic, champion clay shooter Tina Jewell, and outdoorswoman Taylor Garcia trust Rio to give them the edge on the range and in the field. A full line of target loads like Star Team Evo, hunting cartridges like the popular Texas game load, plus an array of buck and slugs. Now Rio is proud to introduce their pro-eco biodegradable wad to help keep plastics out of the environment. Visit RioAmmo.com for a complete line of 12 and sub-gauge products for your favorite game. That's R-I-O-A-M-M-O.com. Howdy Artemis listeners, this is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. And we're back. Marsha, I feel like you had a question before the break that you wanted to ask. Yeah, I had a quick question. I'm just curious about the um, North American Grasslands Act and how that might benefit the work that you're doing, or if it does benefit the work that you're doing. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, You know, I think when um, everyone was working on that, they, the folks were thinking of um, the grasslands of the Midwest and West, and there's still a lot um, for folks to learn about southeastern grasslands. We have, I feel like, done a great job, especially in the past five years, with um, the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative starting and all of us, um, you know, at the local level trying to, you know, um, share that message. But regardless, um, that's that's just going to be extremely beneficial, uh, hopefully to all grasslands across the U.S., um, just to bring awareness, especially with, um, you know, if you think about all the grassland bird species, um, you know, including songbirds that have experienced rapid declines, just like bobwhites that really need 
our help and attention. And that act is going to hopefully help us keep many of these species from becoming listed, either threatened or endangered. But, um, you know, even a species like um, the Eastern Meadowlark, I used to do breeding bird surveys when I was in college um, 15 years ago. And I heard meadowlarks everywhere at every point, every stop I made. And, you know, the percentage of decline that they've experienced, um, I think it's like 70 or 80 percent, you know, since the 70s. Like, you know, this is a, a species that is a habitat generalist that does not require, you know, very specific needs. It can function very well and reproduce well in disturbed landscapes. And the fact that we are seeing metal arcs decline at such a rapid rate, it's just extremely alarming. So um, we're very happy about that act and hoping that it will just shed much more light on all grasslands throughout the U.S. That's cool. Thank you. And I think, um, I mean, I think you're right. Hopefully at the, at the, it'll bring attention to the diversity of that ecosystem, because I think we often tend to look at um, habitat like grasslands. And again, just a, a similarity to sagebrush, we look at it and see it's like flat and desolate, and like there's not much there and don't give due credit to the, the true diversity of the landscape. Um, so yeah, at the very least, hopefully it just brings awareness to the beauty um, and depth of variety in grasslands. And even, even the existence, I feel like, I mean, I went to school in a, you know, basically grew up in the prairie Midwest. And so grasslands are the vestiges of them were the norm on the landscape there. And then like, since I've lived in the Southeast, if I didn't have the formal training that I had, I feel like I would be blind to the fact that this place is even supposed to be dominated by grasslands. Like, there's trees everywhere. I don't know. I have to go looking for grasslands, I feel like, to find them here. So maybe even just that baseline, you know, talking about what things used to look like and why it's important for them to trend back that way. So, and, uh, Ashley, I feel like there was that similar recognition with the Tennessee Wildlife Federation advocacy training that yes. happened recently. Yep. Yeah, Brittany, we had um, Dr. Dwayne Estes come out and host a field day for um, some women here in Tennessee at uh, the Catoosa Wildlife Management Area in this in the Savannah and talked about, I mean, I learned a lot from that field day. It was incredible. Um, and yeah, Marsha, you're right. I feel like there was a lot of light bulb moments for everybody that was out there that day, which was really cool to see. Um, but that was only, you know, a handful of really passionate sportswomen. So, Brittany, can you tell us what the public needs to know about southeastern grasslands? Oh, wow. Where do I begin? Um, well, first and foremost, southeastern grasslands have experienced over a 99% decline Whoa. across the board. Yes. 99%? Yeah. Oh, that's... Mm -hmm. That's gut-wrenching. Yeah, and that uh, really uh, speaks to the point that you just made about, you know, there's trees everywhere, and you're at Catoosa in the savannah, 
not realizing that, you know, that was historically um, a dominant ecosystem, you know. So just getting folks to understand, like, hey, everybody, we, we could we could lose them easily. So we, we got to do everything we can. Um, and, and I'm so proud that I have worked for SGI in my former position, the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, that is. And um, as the coordinator, I still work with Dwayne um, on a very regular basis. Um, a lot of our new partnership positions are in conjunction with SGI. So, um, you know, Quail Forever and SGI's missions are just very synonymous. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I feel like you are perfectly poised to kind of send this message out to our listeners and everybody else. What is it that the public really needs to know about Southeastern grasslands? So the public needs to know about how much they've declined, but you know, primarily how special they are. Um, so grasslands in the Southeast have the highest level of endemism, you know, um, you know, that's a fun end, word. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Endemic species, meaning, um, they have evolved and adapted to, you know, the specific environmental conditions. So the, the soil, there. the ghosted. climate. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and some of our grasslands have even higher, um, plant and wildlife diversity than those in the Midwest. So, um, yeah, and these places, they're just simply stunning. I, I mean, there's so many things to say about grasslands in the southeast, but when you are in a glade or a barren or a prairie, savanna, woodland, and by the way, um, there's some debate on what constitutes a, a quote-unquote grassland, Um Southeastern Grasslands Initiative definition is very broad. So the term grasslands um, is is viewed as, as like an umbrella term. And then you have prairies, glades, balds, fens, anything with a primarily open landscape, um, you know, to be with, with grass dominant you know, species and, and other wildflowers to, to constitute as, as a grassland. So um, there are many different categories there. And if, if the public could see these places, especially the ones that have hung on, have either been restored or maintained over hundreds of years, you would understand why they're so important. Um, and just the number of birds and pollinators and other insects and um you know herptiles you name it there, there's just all these species that have specialized to grasslands uh, you know there's even a professor from mississippi state dr joe von hill who is focusing his research on um you know bugs and pollinators in grasslands and he's like described new species that nobody knew existed and you know Dr. Dwayne Estes and Thea Witzel um, and the others that have worked for SGI 
they've found new even new wildflowers and, and, and grasses that have never been described still. I mean, this is still happening. Um, so it's just incredible from a biodiversity standpoint. Yeah, I feel like so in talking about just the beauty of them, you know, that that imagery where it's, you know, you can sometimes call it a parkland landscape. That At mm-hmm. least that's how our realtor described it to us when we were shopping for homes in the backyard, <laughs> you know. It's a beautiful lawn, trees above. And that is something that I think is inherently, like we as homo sapiens are inherently drawn to, right? That's a really attractive type of landscape for us. You see it in paintings from you know, centuries back, it's like, um, I don't know, there's science behind why it appeals to us has to do with being able to see predators and whatever else. Um, Mm -hmm. But I feel like that anyone that goes there, like you said, Brittany, can immediately latch onto that and recognize just the the awe-inspiring beauty. And I, I know it sounds like I'm waxing poetic here because I am, but it's for a reason. I mean, they're beautiful. Yeah. Anyone old and they're also kind of destinations, you know, like you were talking about balds again, if you're not from the Southeast or haven't lived here for a while, you might not know what a bald is, but a mountain bald is, is place on top of mountains that there's no trees really. And we don't really know why. I mean, unless Brittany, you're more current on the science than I am. Um, I don't think that anybody's really gotten to the bottom. There's hypotheses about why they exist and are able to maintain themselves for the most part. It seems like, um, but they're just beautiful. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings. You get up there and <laughs> that's actually where my husband proposed to me was on a mountain bald. Um, oh, so wow. these these places that used to be, you know, characteristic of the Southeast are now just destinations because they're hard to find. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so. I have a follow-up question about mountain yes. bald. <laughs> Let's hear it, Marsha. <laughs> Oh, but like what's up there? Because, you know, here in Montana, if it's above tree line, then it's just like rocks and shale and stuff like that. Yeah. What's on top of a mountain bald in Tennessee? Well, I can tell you what I've seen. And then Brittany can probably get into more of the science of it. But uh, specifically, the one that we went to for this event, um, it's I said Lord of the Rings because it's a lot of like really close to ground greenery, like small, I guess some forbs depending on the time of year, but grasses. And then there's a bunch of rhododendron, which when it's blooming is like overpoweringly beautiful. I mean, it's so much color. Um, And then, you know, you have associated pollinators with all the flowers and stuff, but there's, it's definitely rocky. I mean, the soil is thin, which I think is one of the leading hypotheses about why they exist. Trees can't really grow there very well. Um, but I, I don't know, there may be also something to do with the chemistry of the soil because of, um, the parent material that eroded into it. Uh, I don't know. Brittany, tell us. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us what you know. Both of, both of those things you mentioned are definitely, um, yeah, main reasons why they are treeless. They, um, can support shrubs. Um, which is why you see all the rhododendrons and like little rhododendron patches, thickets, whatever you want to call them. Um, but yeah, so sometimes um, certain grasslands are edaphic where the uh, soil nutrients and um, just how dry the sites are prevent any deep rooted or not I should say woody deep-rooted species from establishing. Um, of course, a lot of grass and herbaceous species are deep-rooted, but 
Um, yeah, so they're kind of like, uh, you could think of like little mini deserts almost. Um, some even have, you know, cacti growing in them. Um, you know, other uh, endemic species to those, you know, extreme soil conditions. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much the gist of it. Yeah, they're cool. You should go, everybody, if you ever get the chance. Uh, and I remembered what I was going to say before. <laughs> so I'm going to say it now. <laughs> uh, we were talking about, like, the aesthetics of grasslands and these places that are disappearing. And I feel like oftentimes I've been with people who maybe aren't super knowledgeable about ecosystems or habitat management and will be in the woods. And, you know, it's green everything everywhere, but it is actually a desert in my opinion. Like everybody thinks it looks so pleasing to the eye, but a lot of times it's either invasive species or if it's kind of like a closed canopy mature forest, there's nothing to eat for anything there. Like we talked about alone recently on the podcast. If they had hosted the show alone in one of those places, everyone would go home in very short order, uh, regardless <laughs> of the weather, because it's like, yeah, there's no food to eat. Um, so I don't, that's another thing. I don't know, Brittany, if you've run into this, that I really wish a lot more people knew is that, you know, what we've been kind of taught to think of as like a nice wild place oftentimes isn't actually that nice for wild things. Yeah, that I'm really glad that you um, brought up that point because this happens all the time when we are on um, field visits with landowners and, uh, you know, even in West Tennessee, which a lot of folks, at least that are, you know, Tennessee residents that know anything about open landscapes or grasslands, you know, they think about middle Tennessee, the plateau, and then the mountain balls of East Tennessee, but West Tennessee, um, especially the Eastern half of it used to be a lot of prairie savanna and, and woodland. Um, and so, so many times I have been on field visits with landowners and, um, walking around their property and observing what's there. And this is so common and not just in West Tennessee, it's all the whole state and really all over the Southeast that because uh, succession again happens so quickly, you can easily lose a woodland or a savanna or even sometimes a prairie to woody species. And so it's very deceiving because you know, you're seeing this closed canopy forest and, you know, to the untrained eye, they're thinking, oh, this is gorgeous, like you said, but yet there's very little growing in the understory because of too much shade and also because of invasive species creeping in like Japanese stilt grass, which is a shade loving uh, exotic grass from Asia, which is also a nightmare species to deal with. Um, and so it's, it's our duty and responsibility as private lands biologists to educate folks on what they need to do to get it back to the state that it needs to be in and that it historically was, which was, you know, nine times out of 10, a fire maintained ecosystem, you know? So then you explain, you need to take out these trees, bring fire back, you know, spot spray, encroaching saplings, and this is the wonderful thing. 
it's not yet too late to still restore the natural seed bank. Um, there may be some woodlands and savannas that it has been too late, but what we have observed is that it still isn't too late because a lot of times these um, grassland species can remain dormant in the seed bank for decades. Sometimes not, but sometimes they can. And so it's just up to us to unlock that and, you know, get that fire down or get the sunlight down to the, you know, to the floor, so to speak, ground level and get fire back, you know, into those systems. And I have seen this time and time again when that happens and these grassland indicator species, wildflowers, grasses, and even shrubs will come back. And you don't have to plant those species to get them back. All you just need to do is, you know, remove that extreme woody cover and encroachment and run a fire back through it. And it's really remarkable. Now it takes a few years um, before you start observing, you know, these species that oftentimes folks didn't even know existed, didn't know were there. Uh, but it's it's actually quite magical, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, very field of dreams. Yes. So if you build it, it will come. Yep, I was waiting. I was like, yeah. should I? Do I need to say it, Marsha? You got it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I got your back, Ashley. <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, I think we're kind of coming towards the end here. So Brittany, I know that uh, your time is limited these days, but you are a hunter. Uh, can you tell us about one of your favorite moments in the field or on the water, if you prefer? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I'll, I'll try not to ramble too much, but um, I did grow up deer hunting and squirrel hunting with my dad um you know behind our our farm where there was a good little patch of woods um so i have fond memories of doing that with him it's just like bonding time for us um but as far as like favorite moments in the field um I've really enjoyed bringing my children to some of these prairies that we've restored, of course, and teaching them the different plants that are out there and, um, you know, observing monarch butterflies, which are also critically endangered. Um, and other moments, and I guess more recently have been um, spending time in the Black Belt prairies of Mississippi and Alabama. Uh, that's why I kind of laughed earlier about, do I just work in Tennessee? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a, a, a couple down there, um, Mr. and Mrs. Bell, um, Mitchell and Hazel Bell, that are just really special to me and to our team and to Dwayne. And I recently got to visit their quail plantation with Dwayne uh, about a year and a half ago. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, it's it's definitely a true prairie, lots of rare species. Um, Dr. Jovan Hill is doing some research out there from Mississippi State, and it's 11,000 acres. So it's just, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced because it is like the true example of 
um, intact grasslands and a good quail population. So um, recently, um, about three weeks ago, we got to have our Quail Forever uh, team staff meeting there. And they have a, a historical lodge there that was, I think, built in maybe the 50s and little cabins that, you know, we all got to stay in. And it was just like um, all the feels, so to speak. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just really good to be together and to, to show this place off to our team and to spend time with the bells or just uh, I can't say how special they are enough without you know people meeting them themselves but anyway so uh that's just been really incredible that sounds amazing sounds like a wonderful partner um have you ever hunted wild quail yes a few times in in west tennessee yeah uh and that was also a wonderful experience and i got to go with one of my mentors mike hansbro who's an NRCS area biologist in West Tennessee. And um, gosh, I, I owe so much to him. He's he, he taught me most of what I know about Bob Whites. So, um, you know, he's um, definitely kind of like family to me. So, yeah, um, I haven't got to go a lot again just because um, my job is really demanding not that I'm complaining about that because I'm it's also my fault I'm a little too dedicated sometimes <laughs> um but so I just I just really try to spend time with my kids and none of our family live in West Tennessee so we do spend a fair amount of time like traveling to to see family so sure yeah yeah well the reason I ask is I have never yet had the opportunity to hunt uh northern or wild northern bobwhites uh, and I don't know that I ever will, unfortunately, because of what we've talked about today. But I was curious if you had been able to. So that's cool. Yeah. Well, hopefully you can and we can get them back to, yes. you know, sustainable population levels. Here's to hoping. Here's to hoping. <laughs> what did you say, Marcia? Before then. I, said, I said when Charlie's your age. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You maybe. and she can go hunting for that point. <laughs> That, no, okay, I would love that, but my husband really, because he's he's very passionate about all of this, that would be like the pinnacle for him, I'd say. Um, and shooting his grandfather's gun, which he can't, I can't, I won't let him anymore because it only shoots lead and I'm not eating bird's shot with lead. Internal struggle here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, well, wonderful. Let's transition to hits and misses. Um, what have you been aiming for lately and how did it go? I don't, Brittany, do you want to start us off? Well, um, gosh, hopefully I'm going in the right direction with the answer to this question. But so for a long time, we didn't have much of a team, so to speak. And so ever since I've been the state coordinator, I've wanted to grow our staff, um, you know, um, expand our footprint. And so I did apply for two National Fish and Wildlife grants through the Cumberland Plateau Stewardship Fund, and we were awarded both of them, which I, I think I mentioned that already. Yeah, so, um, and we, I just hired a new biologist for, for West Tennessee to help our staff out there. And uh, my next goal 
is to hopefully put a Quail Forever partner biologist in East Tennessee. Um, you know, most folks think about West Tennessee when they think about quail populations, because that is, you know, where it's the best overall, even though it's still dismal um, compared to, you know, historical numbers. But there are plenty of areas in East Tennessee where quail are still, um, you know, there. I don't, I don't know about thriving, but um, there's just a lot of landowner interest and so that's that's my next goal is to hopefully get a field biologist over there. Awesome. Well, I'll go next. I uh, have a, a miss from this morning. Um, I was I went out to a place with my daughter to try to pick some wild blueberries. And you can hear in the background she's upset because this whole endeavor caused her to skip her first nap, which is just like ugh, bad. Um, but we drove all the way out to this place and there's blueberry plants as far as the eye can see and not the first ripe blueberry. <laughs> oh the bears and birds had gotten to everything that was worth eating and the only, I don't know, maybe like a quarter of the plants had berries on them, but they weren't ripe. So mm. I didn't bring a snack for her because blueberries are her favorite Ooh. food and I thought she was just going to be, you know, eating them hand and fist, but I don't know. So then I sat down to nurse her. Cause she was hungry and asking her. So I did that. And I looked down at my lap as I'm holding her and there's seed ticks crawling. Up oh no. Both of my oh. legs onto my child. Oh. And I'm just like, ah, like I get her off and I go to the tailgate and just strip down both of us to nothing besides diaper and, you know, underwear. And, uh, I shove everything in the back of the truck and get us in the cab. I do once over, I found like a couple more on her, but I think I caught, caught it just in time so that we'd, I think I got a few bites, but she, I don't think she did. And uh, yeah, I just, I felt like kind of a crappy parent in that moment. Cause I'm like, here I am, take you out here. No food, you get covered in ticks. But uh, yeah, I think we <laughs> avoided the worst of it. So, but it was, it was also fun to be out there. But <laughs> <laughs> and I made it home in time to record this podcast. So that's good. I feel like that last statement, it was, it was always fun to be out there. It's like, that's what just, def- that's what makes us different. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so. We did see three turkeys and seven poults, which was, again, cool. Oh, but also, I'm like, oh, man, like 2.2 poults per bird. That's kind of crappy. But yeah. anyway, to be expected. So so that was my morning. Marsha, what about you? That sounds rough, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been worse. That's for sure. <laughs> Could have been, well. Yes. <laughs> we can write a story about all the ways it could have been worse. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I have some news for everybody, which is both kind of a hit and a miss. Um, Some people are aware, most are not, but for the last year, I have been going to school part-time while working full-time in pursuit of a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. Um, And I've recently decided to switch my focus and do that full-time, which means I will be stepping down from my role as Artemis Program Manager um, and tossing the baton to somebody else um, to take Artemis into the future. And it was, it was not an easy decision because there's so much that I love about this job and the work that I get to do. Um, but for me personally, I think it's the right decision right now. Um, and so, 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 so that's the news. Um, and everybody who's interested in this position, 
should uh, stay tuned for the job posting um, and email us if you have any questions, because I'd be happy to talk to people about it. Um, you know, our, our podcast has been a really great resource for Artemis ambassadors, um, and a lot of our listeners have stepped up to um, volunteer for that role because they're passionate about what we're doing in the community we're building. And so hopefully through this podcast, we can reach other passionate women who might be interested in the Artemis program manager position. Yeah, here's to hoping. I don't want to scare anybody off that's interested in applying because if you're interested, please do. But these are some big shoes to fill. I <laughs> need to get a new supervisor and a new counselor because <laughs> this, whole, this whole time, you know, that's one of the things that I've loved so much about working with you, Marsha, is just, I don't, your whole, I mean, management style, but just the way that you approach people is really... It's really wonderful. And now I understand why you have such a aptitude for that or I mean, yeah, where you're going to go with it. So anyway, sad for me, but I'm also excited to see kind of like you said, um, where Artemis goes from here. Yeah. And, you know, I think Aaron um, Kindle said it best once. He's like, nobody ever truly leaves Artemis. <laughs> so, yep, yep, that's true. <laughs> so I look forward to seeing a part of the community in other ways. Awesome. Well, we will certainly be talking more about this um, up until in long after you're gone. But uh, Brittany, I want to thank you for being our guest today. I feel like this was a wonderful, this is something that I've known about for a long time. And I feel like I want everyone to know about it. And you did such a great job talking to us about it that hopefully mission accomplished. Well, thank you. I, this has really been a really unique uh, opportunity. I thank you very much for, for asking me. I'm, I'm glad to do it. Yeah. Thanks for me. I learned a lot. Yes. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week until next time. Be bold, stay curious and get outside and watch out for (laughs) C-Ticks.